Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast as part of the Sustainable Sheep Systems series. My name is Daniel Stout and today we'll be talking to Dr. Philip Scoose, Principal Scientist in Parasitology at Morden, to discuss liver fluking sheep. Hello Philip, thanks for joining me today. Hello Daniel, you're very welcome. Um, Philip, I'm sure everyone listening is well aware of liver fluking sheep and how damaging they can be, but what actually is a liver fluke? Um, the liver fluke is a, a flatworm parasite. Um, it, it's about the size of a, of a, a cornflake. I always liken it to, to, to food products, which is not, not a good idea. But the adults <laughs> are about the size of cornflakes, just to give you an idea how big they are. But it, it's a, a complicated little beastie. Um, it's got a, a very complicated life cycle involving a tiny little mud snail. Um, and how that actually works on pasture is really fascinating, but I, mean, I know farmers just want to know how to uh, get rid of it. But it, but it is quite important that, that you have an understanding of that, that life cycle and how, how the whole thing works on, on the ground and the timings and, and what that means for your animals. The easiest way to think about it is starting with the adults in, in the liver system. Uh, that, that's where they live um, in the bile ducts usually as, as adults. So you've got a little pouch there, if you think about it, of these kind of cornflakes and they pump out thousands and thousands of fluke eggs. That's their whole reason for, for existing. Um, those, and those eggs will then make it onto pasture out in the feces. Uh, of, of the animals when they when they pass dung onto onto the ground, um, and depending on the time of year and the weather conditions, there's a little larval stage inside those eggs that will will develop, um, and the temperature and rainfall are kind of critical in that. Uh, but it can be as fast as two weeks. The little larval stage develops and hatches out, and that goes off in search of these little mud snails. And they are absolutely pivotal to the fluke life cycle. Um, if you don't have the right species of snails on the ground, you shouldn't have a fluke problem. Uh, but these little larvae are great at finding the snails. They get into them and develop inside them and multiply inside them. So for, for each egg or each larva going into a, a snail, you can have thousands of the next stage coming out. And it's that stage that becomes the infectious stage on pasture. It's a little thing like a tadpole. Again, all of this is microscopic. Sadly, we can't see that. Your sheep and cattle can't either. Um, so it's quite a quite a challenge to understand the, the fluke risk on pasture and, and on the ground. Um, uh, but take it from me, there there can be lots of uh, fluke cysts on pasture. So this little tadpole sheds its tail and forms a little protective cyst on grass. And it's thousands of those that your animals are grazing when inadvertently when, when, they're, when they're eating grass. Um, so that's where the baby fluke are. They're just inside those cysts. Um, and once eaten, they know exactly where they are and they'll hatch out uh, in, in, the, uh, in the intestine. It's actually the conditions in the stomach and the intestine that tell them where they are. Uh, I mean, I told you it was fascinating, but they, they, the baby flukes will then chew their way through the intestinal wall into the peritoneal cavity and then go off in search of the liver. And they're, again, they're really tiny at this stage, so they're less than a millimetre in size when they hatch out, um, but they invade the, the liver and just march their way through it, trying to destroy it as they go, and they can make a right mess of a sheep's liver because it's, it's a nice delicate, tender little structure um, and they can make a right mess of a sheep's liver and that's not a good organ to have damaged uh, in a productive animal. Um, so yeah, in, in the next 10 or 12 weeks, they'll, they'll, they'll grow and become adults and get into the bile ducts and start the whole cycle over again. So it's the whole cycle on the ground, if you like, from eggs through to adults. Is, it takes the best part of six months, but depends on temperature, <coughs> rainfall and, and various other things. Um, but it's, it's quite a protracted life cycle and it has stages on the ground, it has stages in the animal. And we're trying to intervene and control that. So it is, it is quite a challenge. 
Yeah, it's um, it's quite something, isn't it? Um, kind of based on what you were saying about there. So, what's the difference between sort of acute, subacute, and the chronic fluke disease that we we see in sheep? How does each one sort of manifest? What are the symptoms? Yeah. And yeah, when in the question. year we like to see them as well? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's a it's a numbers game, really, Daniel. To be honest, um, acute fluke is is really the infection caused by mass migration of these baby fluke through the liver. So that's that's early in infection. You'd usually see that in the sort of early autumn after a, a, a warm wet summer where there's been lots of snail activity and lots of shedding and lots of fresh cysts on pasture um, the, the the divisions if you like between acute and subacute and chronic are, are slightly blurred but subacute would be next so it's a kind of it's a slightly slower pickup of cysts over a longer period of time so it just sort of blurs it a little bit so there, there'd be slightly older fluke uh, slightly later in, in, in the process or slightly later in the year as well. And then you kind of get chronic fluke at the other end, which is a buildup of really of adults. Um, so they, they'll be 10 or 12 weeks old by the time they're adults. So that's mm-hmm. that's again later in the season. That tends to be into the wintertime and early spring, you'd, you'd see the adults. So um, there aren't clear distinctions between acute, subacute and chronic, but just gives you an idea of it's kind of like baby fluke, teenagers and adults. That's kind of a simple way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, chronic fluke would quite typically be then not necessarily high mortality, but used doing poor, so lack of condition, kind of lack of thrive. Yeah, um, it can be. But I mean, I have seen fatal cases of chronic fluke when they've accumulated just so many, it just tips them over. Yeah, um, to that point. But the acute fluke can be a, a storm of disease, if you like, because it yeah. can happen quite quickly. It can it can hit an animal, even a healthy animal, quite quickly if they just happen to be grazing in an area where there's a flush of fresh fluke cysts, they can pick mm-hmm. up a lot of these very, very quickly. Um, and that can happen just, that's either triggered by the weather or just where they happen to be grazing. Um, so it's a bit of a challenge to spot. And sometimes, sadly, a dead animal is the first indication that there's acute fluke out there. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, a lot of people might be familiar with the sort of bot- typical kind of bottle jaw that we see in chronic cases. What, what, how does that, what is that? Yeah, I need to defer to the vets to best describe this, but it's really, it's an indication that this is a blood feeding parasite. It's it's mm-hmm. a collection of fluid under the chin. Um, and it's it's a, an indication that the animals are actually really very anemic. So they've lost a lot of blood um, and it's actually blood protein that they're losing. So there's a, it becomes more, more watery, if you like, which is why it collects in certain parts. Mm-hmm. And under the chin is one place you'll see it. I mean, we were chatting there about uh-huh. chronic fluke killing animals and I have actually seen that in the storm of disease we saw in 2012 and 13 which is on the back of a really warm Mm -hmm. summer and a very mild winter Um, so we've got a really heavy infestation and I'd never only ever seen bottle jaw in textbooks but this is the first time I'd ever seen it for real and you could see it 100 yards away the animals just did not look right at all their faces you know the chins were really swollen they were very anemic their eyes were really really white and so were their gums that just shows you that the, they were really in a bad way from a, an, an anemia uh, point of view if you like so they've lost a lot of blood and that's because liver fluke is a blood feeding parasite but going back to that life cycle then um do stock need to be harboring the fluke to release fresh eggs in the spring or can the eggs be expelled in say the middle of winter and survive and go dormant until temperatures rise so they can hatch and infect the snail in the spring um yeah that's a good question too daniel i mean there is a basic seasonality to to, to the fluke life cycle um I, I don't like to make it too prescriptive because i know yeah. and we know that fluke is very different on different farms in different years 
Um, but th there is a basic pattern to it, and it's it's the, typically the adults would be shedding eggs because that's the stage that are in animals late in the year. So sort of winter into spring would be the typical egg shedding, and then the, all the snail action happens in the summertime, and then the snails mm -hmm. are shedding the next stage into the autumn, and the animals pick that up and then present with disease in the winter. So that's the basic seasonality. So you would most likely have adults late in the year. Um, and they will be shedding fresh fresh eggs unless they've been treated. They'll be shedding mm -hmm. fresh eggs in the winter and spring. Um, but that's not to say I mean eggs. We're finding out more and more about fluke as we go. And I mean, you'd think we'd, we'd have it cracked by now. But um, we, we do know that the cysts are actually very good at surviving um, in the, through, through the winter time and can pose an infection risk in the spring. But also the eggs can survive remarkably well. Um, and even frozen or in the fridge, and I mean, they can remain quite viable for mm -hmm. for long, for several months anyway. Um, so it just it's just without being too prescriptive about what's actually happening on the farm. I think it comes down then to well, how would you know what's happening? And that's where it comes down to diagnostics and understanding uh, what, what the animals are telling you and using the animals as sentinels for what's happening on the ground, what they're encountering, but also having a feel for the life cycle and how, how that's happening on the ground as well. I mean, I, I don't expect uh, farmers to go round on their hands and knees looking for mud snails. I don't think that achieves an awful lot, but if it's, it's understanding the implications of well, where are they and where are the animals going? What does a mud snail habitat look like? And, and, and what are the animals telling mm -hmm. me? Are they infected? And what are the different tests? that we have at our disposal and what do they tell us about the fluke infection and what should I do about it? That's really, that's really where it's at for me anyway. I mean, we can pontificate about life cycles and timings and stuff, but it, it, it really, I think it needs, we need evidence of what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's, um, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Um, and we'll speak about the kind of diagnostics later on. Um, and before we also get onto the kind of the, the treatment options, um, do we have any sort of more management options um, or grazing options do we have to kind of control or at least maybe reduce the risk of sheep picking up fluke? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, the classic two that you'll hear would be fencing and drainage. Um, yep. I think that's quite easy to say, but actually quite hard to do. Uh, and, and I mean, there is good rationale and logic behind both. Um, I mean, the fencing is to keep animals out of fluky parts of a farm at fluky times of the year. Um, but then it becomes, well, do you know what a fluky part of a farm looks like and what, what is a fluky time of the year? Um, you know, what's that based on? So do need mm -hmm. a bit of evidence to back that up. And, and drainage would be the other the other classic. If you think about the mud snails, I mean, the clues in the name, they need mud. They like poached areas where there's wheel tracks and tractor marks and they're tiny little things. I mean, they're only a couple of millimetres, two or three millimetres long, fully grown and it's very hard to see them. And but we know roughly where they live. Um, so the idea is drainage is to try and make a field or a farm you know, less snail friendly. Uh, so yeah. it just it ruins their habitat. So that habitat then shrinks and that then the risky parts of the field are, 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 are less obvious. Um, the slight caveat with that is that, that, and maybe it applies slightly more to cattle, but there are some envir agri-environment schemes on uh, going at the moment that actually almost well, actually do promote the opposite where you're actually re-wetting a field or blocking drains and, and allowing fields to flood for all sorts of environmental reasons, whether that's for flood risk management or for wetland birds to feed or or, or, or various other conservation grazing um, 
ideas. Um, so it's just bearing in mind what, what would the implications of that be for the animals and for the fluke life cycle and can we provide some evidence one way or the other whether that's a good or bad idea. I was just going to say, I mean, some people joke, joking about sort of drainage and, and, and fencing that you almost need to fence a whole farm off. I mean, it, it becomes almost impractical. Some farms are just naturally fluky because of where they are and the, the, the sort of lie of the land and the, the, the pH of the soil and the, the, the grazing history, if you like. So some of these things, okay, they're feasible, but are they really that practical? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, if we did have what you call a, a flukier area, a wetter area in the farm, and we're talking about avoidance, would that sort of be from late summer onwards then? Yeah, typically it would be. And it doesn't Talking have to generality. be permanent exclusion. I mean, it can be a temporary, even an electric fence, just to keep them out of a, a boggy mm -hmm. area. If it, and sometimes I mean, it's, it's been interesting in the last few years because we've had a, a run of quite dry springs and quite hot summers. But we still see fluke out there and people will say, oh, it's too dry for fluke. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because what happens is that the what little sort of standing water there is on a field, it sort of shrinks down to where the really wet areas are and the animals will go in there looking for fresh grass and, and some water. Uh, so it just shows you where the wetter areas can mm -hmm. be on a field. And that's interesting. You can get a little, little sort of little focus of fluke infection in a dry year because that's that's where they're going but if you could if you could see that and identify that and keep them out of there then that would definitely help reduce the risk and if you can provide them with water troughs and things to keep them from splashing about looking for water that that would also help so give you know give them access to water so they don't go looking for it yeah yeah no it's interesting um could you give us a quick overview of the flucicides available to treat stock um if we know they've got a fluke burden Okay, I can try uh, off the top of my head. Um, if, if my brain still works after the uh, festive season, um, we, despite the fact you might see lots of boxes of chemicals in the farmers' market um, and the merchants, there aren't that many active ingredients, and that's the important thing. Um, there are really only five. Well, I'm going to say five, stroke four, uh, that we can really think about, and. A big difference here between what flucicides do and wormers do is that the flucicides don't kill all stages of fluke, um, and that's something to bear in mind. Um, I have in my head a little spectrum here of going from the baby flukes we talked about, these sort of mm -hmm. two-day to two-week-old ones on the left-hand side, to adults on the right, and the product of choice, if you like, uh, that can kill all the stages in the definitive host, the, the sheep or the cow, is a product called triclobendazole. Um, but I'll caveat that by saying that's if you don't have any resistance issues. So when it's working, it has the potential to kill all of those stages right through. And it's become the drug of choice because you don't have to think too hard about what stage is in my animals and what do I, what product do I need to use. But it's been a bit of a victim of its own success. And we do have some resistance issues, which we can talk a little bit about with triclobendazole. Um, next in line would be a product called Clozantil, which kills in at about six weeks of age, um, five to six weeks of age, and, and right through to adults from there. Uh, and that's a very good product. Uh, and following that is a product that's a different chemical, but has a kind of similar spectrum of activity. And that's a, a chemical called nitroxanil. Um, but sadly, the manufacturing company are in the process of withdrawing that from sale because of, I think, supply issues. And it hasn't been a market success, but it's been great to have it there and kind of need all the options we have that are, uh, that are available. Um, sadly, we might be losing nitroxanil soon if we haven't already. Uh, and then we're really left with products that are adulticides. They only kill adults. Um, 
So those are flukes of about 10 or 12 weeks of age. So they've already done some damage and they're, they're looking to, to live for the, the long haul, if you like. But there are products like albendazole, uh, which is a white drench, uh, and oxyclozonide, which is related to Clozantil, actually, uh, that will kill adults. So it's about mm-hmm. trying to place those products in the life cycle and when are you likely to have immatures, when are you likely to have these teenage flukes, when are you likely to have adults, and can you use some diagnostic testing to confirm what you've got. And, and, and then so that helps with product choice and product timing as well. I think that's really, really important from some sort of little field studies we've done that product choice and timing is really important to make the best use of the few drugs that we have because we don't really have mm-hmm. that many. And despite the fact, I mean, lots of different companies will make these products, but and they all have different fancy names that I can never keep up with. Like the, the key message is to, to look at the active ingredient that's in the bottle, not the name of the product on the bottle. You need to know what's in that bottle and what does it actually do what stage of fluke does it kill and is that the right stage for what i if the job i need to do now so hope hope that yeah no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah no it certainly did um so say we're kind of in that that kind of peak period of, of cysts opening and, and and kind of um kind of infective pasture if i treated with a triclobendazole in say september time but there is also new cysts coming onto the pasture there's new new opportunity for infection, how long are those sheep covered for? You know, is there any persistency in the drug? When should I think that I might need to treat again? Yeah, very good question, Daniel. Um, the simple answer to that, there's no persistence in any of the fluke drugs, and that's really important to bear in mind. Um, people do get caught out when animals get infected again. They think the product hasn't worked, but quite often it's reinfection. Uh, they can literally be infected the following day, um, the day after they're treated. It uh, doesn't really matter what the product is. Um, so, And they can pick up infection that's either being freshly shed or just cysts that are out there that, that they just happen to have, haven't hoovered up already. Uh, so there can be lots of cysts waiting to be eaten there and the animals are treated. That will kill, hopefully kill what fluke are in the animals at the time, but they're prone to reinfection. And it can take, if you, if you think about it, I mean, how long is it going to take for that to manifest? How would you know? And, you, and I mean, we can tell from... If you do, for example, fecal egg counts, that can tell you that there are adults present. And if you treat and you lose, the, the egg counts disappear, then that tells you you've had a good kill. But it yep. depends how quickly do those eggs reappear. What's that telling you? And it depends what products you've used to clear them um, as to well, what, what age of fluke are in those animals. And if the eggs reappear within three or four weeks, you're thinking, well, hold on a minute. That's too quick for this product. That, you know, It's nothing to do with mm-hmm. persistence. It's just to do with the age of the fluke they've killed or not killed. Uh, so it does require a wee bit of thought and interpretation about, uh, but the simple answer is there's no persistence at all. Uh, uh, unlike some of the wormers, I mean, some of the wormers have, the, the mictons uh, have some persistent activity. And then in fact, there are some combination products where you have a fluke, or, fluke drug and a wormer in the same in the same bottle. Um, and they both mm-hmm. work perfectly well. But the point is that just because the wormer is persistent, don't assume the fluke drug is because it isn't. No, no, they're on. I mean, you maybe mentioned the time span earlier on, but so how how quickly from, say, ingestion could we see sort of uh, performance impact, sort of, you know, effect on the animal? Because they take a yeah. bit of time to travel to the liver first, do they? It does, yeah. I mean, it takes them, it takes them about yeah two to three weeks before they get through yeah. the intestine into the liver and they can start to do damage 
as soon as they get there pretty much but again it depends on the numbers a few baby fluke going through probably won't do much but if you get enough going through at the same time Mm -hmm. they can cause significant damage so yeah i would say from maybe two to four weeks in they'll be starting to eat away at your animals um Mm-hmm. That's just something to bear in mind because they're quite hard to detect at that stage because they're too young to lay eggs. Um, so that that's where the diagnostics are are, are tricky. Um, so I mean, if it, we could probably mention the diagnostics now in, in context, but the the earliest indication that an animal is infected with fluke is actually an- antibodies in blood. So we're all very familiar now with COVID, mm-hmm. with what the various lateral flow tests and things are picking up and antibody tests. So the same thing with fluke, that the animals will respond and, and there'll be antibodies coursing around in their bloodstream. That happens within about two weeks of infection for sheep and cattle. So it, the, the blood test is actually, there, there are very good blood tests for, for fluke in sheep and cattle. And I would certainly advocate using those. The, the only caveat with that is they're a little bit expensive and they have to be done on individual animals. You can't pull blood from a, a lot of animals and use that to tell you very much. So you'd need to do it on, on 10 or 12 individual animals. But it can be done. And we've done it, we've done it uh, in, in sort of little field trials where we use management groups of animals as sentinels of the fluke infection and we monitor mm-hmm. their bloods until they go positive and you can stop testing once they go positive but the key the really sort of interesting thing about that is that tells you not only when did they get infected with very good resolution it'll also tell you where if you know where they've been you'll know where they've encountered the, the fluke infection and that can be very helpful in sort of mapping the farm if you like so the blood tests on sentinel animals are really really useful and you can use sheep for that uh, key thing is they have to be young animals last year's animals are no good because they they could be antibody positive because they've met fluke uh last year and that's not telling you anything about fluke this year so it, they need to be this year's animals if you like um and yeah sheep are really good at sentinels even on a, on a mixed farm so you can use the sheep to tell you a little bit about the fluke risk on the ground as to you know depending where animals are mixed grazing and whatever so that's really useful uh, so that would be one port of call um, but the other tests available really are, are based on fecal samples um, the workhorse that most of the testing labs would use and we use it ourselves is the fluke egg count so as i said the fluke very conveniently put their eggs out in feces and we can count them uh, in a fecal sample. It's quite easy to do. Uh, you can even do it yourself. Um, even I can do it. It's not too difficult. Don't let my research assistant hear you say that because she's really good at it. Um, <laughs> but, um, but you can use uh, individual egg counts on animals or composite mob group samples as well to tell you a, lot, a good bit of information about the fluke in, your, in different groups and individual animals, depending how you do it. Um, the caveat, and there always is one, is that anti, or, sorry, fluke eggs are only passed out by adult parasites. So if you've got eggs and feces, you've got adult parasites somewhere in the system. Mm-hmm. So they'll be 10 or 12 weeks old or older. Uh, they could be last year's. You know, so you have to bear in mind what, what, what are you actually detecting and what is that telling you? And just to complicate things further, but in a way it doesn't. Um, in right in between the sort of six seven week stage there's a, a relatively new test has come out that's actually really helpful and it's called a copro antigen test sounds very technical but it's really just picking up a secretion that the flukes themselves secrete when they're migrating um, and we can pick that up in feces so it's the same sample as you'd submit for a fluke mm-hmm. egg count the only issue with it is again there's always issues pros and cons with these things it's really sensitive um, 
and it can pick up infection before eggs appear, but it, can, it only really works on individuals. Again, it can't be pulled because it's one of these immunological tests, but it's picking up antigen this time, not antibody uh, in a fecal sample. And that's become a really useful test and a very good indicator of treatment efficacy. So if you treat animals, you, you should see that signal go very quickly if they've been successfully treated. So it's just about knowing what tests are available and what they're telling you about the fluke life cycle, what age of fluke you've got. That might inform your treatment decisions. Mm -hmm. It might inform your management. Um, it is a bit complicated, and I totally understand that. So I, mean, I always refer uh, farmers and advisors to, to higher authorities, and some of the best in the business would be, the, I'm sure folks have heard of the Sustainable Control of Parasites in Sheep group, the SCOPS group. Um, very good group of vets, scientists, farmers who sit down and think long and hard about how do we get good messages about best practice in, in, in the best possible, understandable, practical, uh, uh, feasible way to do it. Uh, so I would definitely have a look at the SCOPS mm -hmm. website. Um, there's a lot of good information on, on Fluke there about what diagnostic tests are available, what treatment options are available, how to do egg counts, how to test for resistance. So I would always point people at SCOPS. There is a cows equivalent as well, uh, imaginatively called cows, <laughs> control of worms and sustainably, I think it stands for. But um, again, they have some really nice graphics, a uh, little, um, and uh, we shouldn't do ourselves out of business actually at Morden. I, th I think we should get some credit for, for doing some good knowledge exchange in this area too. We've tried our best to make some of these messages simple, simpler and easier to visualize and understand. So we've been developing animations and video clips and um, I would definitely have a look at the the, uh, the Morden website as well. So there's three for you. And, and, and I'm also Irish, so I should really mention the uh, Animal Health Ireland. I think they do some great uh, in, information on their website as well on parasites and flukes and things that they we all share. Uh, so it's the same thing. So the same sort of crafted information. So there's some really good sources of information there. And, and just one final a bit of sort of PR. I was lucky enough to get access to a little video clip of the liver fluke life cycle. And it's actually filming the flukes in situ. So you see them in the bile ducts shedding billions of eggs. You'll see them entering the snails, how the larval stages get out of the eggs into the snails. You'll see them coming out of the snails and forming cysts on grass. So I think there's nothing better than allowing the farmer to see that for themselves. It's a little two-minute video on YouTube. Uh, we we have it on the Morden website and it's available. Scops have it as well. I think cows have it too. So that's well worth a look. And uh, you can have a look at our wee animation as well about fighting the fluke and see if you, if, if you can start to uh, piece the jigsaw together. But I think that's kind of where it's at it's having an understanding of of the life cycle of the habitat the grazing habitat the grazing management your diagnostic options your treatment options how do you know if a treatment's worked how do you deal with resistance so it's all of those sorts of things and i think those resources cover them very very well brilliant no i can um i'll certainly vouch for that there's a lot of good content um i'll certainly be looking up the uh the video of the it's a snail's eye view of the flute life cycle that we and yeah, the sheep and the farmers ne never see, but it's fascinating to see, but it does help you understand what we're up against. Yeah, no, no, very interesting. Um, I suppose if we're speaking sort of rough generalities then just so farmers can have an idea of when they should be thinking about using the different tests and the different drugs, um, how early in the season can we see fluke? Um, yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, the earliest indication 
that you will see would be the blood test, and that's mm-hmm. I would say in the summer summertime, mid mid to late summer would be about the earliest we would expect to see fluke. Yeah. So you could be looking at a blood testing maybe starting in August time and do it month, monthly. It doesn't have to be every week, and because it is expensive and invasive and all the rest. Um, so maybe monthly blood testing would be a good place to start just to see our animals starting to go positive because I mean, we, we, did, we did some in, over in the West Coast this year, and or sorry, last year, uh, very dry summer, weren't expecting to see very much and lo and behold, they were positive, you know, so who, who knew? So they have picked up infection in a dry year and that was the diagnostic test telling us that loud and clear. So yeah, that would be sort of summertime. It's it's hard to put an exact date on it, but I'd be looking sort of mid to late summer for the blood mm-hmm. tests and then then once they go positive, you can stop blood testing and look to the fecal tests and that will start to tell you. And you can do those. I mean, the, the copper antigen costs a little bit, as I said, because it's being done individually. And maybe I would reserve that for the efficacy t- testing. But the egg count's really useful. You can do a get a composite egg count done once a month on a group mm-hmm. of animals and that will tell you if they're starting to become, you know, is the infection mature now? Uh, so what are we dealing with? Who's laying eggs? Um, so that would be the sort of approximate timing. Um, you could go in maybe autumn time with the monthly uh, composite egg counting. And and, mm-hmm. and you can start, I mean, that's quite a cheap thing to do in a sense because composite egg count, I think, would cost you about a tenner, I think, on a, to, for a, a, a lab to do that for you. But you could do two or three different mobs, if you like, to sort of give you an indication of what's happening in different parts of a farm, depending how sort of separately they're grazed. But it can tell you quite a lot about what's happened this year um, if you choose the right animals. And yeah, I think young animals are really good because in a sense, they haven't seen fluke before. So they're a, it doesn't complicate the issue. Older animals, you're not quite sure, was that last year's infection or what? Have they been carrying that for two or three years? Um, so uh, yeah, young animals are really, really useful to follow um, in any given year. Yeah, so for most flocks, that would mean either sort of finishing lambs or store lambs you've still got on farm, or using your ewe lamb mob as yep. that sentinel group to your yep. to for your ewes, because um, you yep, can't go test your ewes. Yep. Oh, well, you can. You can um, test them, but it's, it's going to be complicated to interpret what this a positive, yeah. <laughs> a positive result means. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose if we're talking about, you know, you've mentioned earlier on there's a bit of trachal blendazole resistance now. You know, it's more and more important to try and use these other products when they're effective. When sort of in generalities again, can we start thinking about I should be moving away from trachal blendazole now and moving towards using, say, Clozantel? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of loaded question, and, and but it's a very good yeah. question. Um, and I, I, I think the first thing I, w- I would advocate is, is to find out, does triclobendazole work for you? Um, yep. I mean, there's an assumption that it either does or it doesn't, um, quite often based on no evidence at all with respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, that's the first thing I'd be doing. And I, I mean, the challenge, you can't just sort of decide, right, today I'm going to test the efficacy of triclobendazole. Your animals have to be egg count positive or copper antigen positive for you to have a signal that you can then see, well, has that treatment done anything to the egg count or the copper antigen levels? So you kind of need animals, and that's where the sort of monthly monitoring can help because you, you've got you've got a group there that you can see that the signal is building and you can get to a certain level, right? I'm going to treat that group and see, does triclobendazole work for me? So the fluke population that's in those animals that's on my farm, is that susceptible or resistant? resistant? So I um, hope that, that doesn't sound too complicated, but yeah, you kind of need a signal and that's where the monitoring can help you time that signal. So when you do go to test mm-hmm. the product, um, 
but the, I mean, the other advice would be if you do use use any product, I would always take a sample the day you've treated a fecal sample and get mm-hmm. some egg counts done or copper antigen if you can afford it, and then test again three weeks later those same animals and see. You know, it's not the perfect test. You know, in the sense that, um, well, I mean, actually, I mean, it is a good test if you if you take a sample on the day you treated and three weeks later, and that's a very powerful test actually. If if you sit down and talk it through with your vet or advisor as to what does that mean where you can test them after you've treated them three weeks is is the typical time span for that because it allows the eggs to sort of leak out because they will for days um, after treatment and, and that, but that that can be yeah that that can be an issue and it's just trying to nail down well what is that actually telling me did that treatment work or not um, if, if you've got no egg count for example three weeks after treatment that might mean your treatment worked beautifully or it could also mean that your animals didn't have fluke at all and you've treated them necessarily so it's just trying to un- interpret what does that mean so i think the the day of treatment sample and the three weeks later is mm-hmm. the most powerful um it's effectively a fecal egg kind reduction test if you like um, yeah and that, that that's a very powerful test because it, te- it tells you yes they were infected the, i treated them and yes the product i used worked or it didn't and that's really powerful information um, you, Mordom was involved in a project um, I thought a few years ago now, was it um, looking at fluke and trickle blend as all use in Argyllshire? Yep, um, um, that's actually still a, still a live project, actually. We had great engagement with farmers over in the west uh, in, in Argyll, um, sort of based around Campbelltown and Loch Gilphead and the vets' practices mm-hmm. there. Were, they were a great help. So we recruited five farms in each of those two areas and I mean, it is kind of fluke central. I think everybody acknowledges that the the lovely uh, mild yeah. Argyle climate is perfect for snails, and um, it's a bit wet as well. Um, I mean, I come from further west, so I can sympathise with with that. Um, but it's it's kind of perfect fluke habitat. But it's also kind of perfect fluke climate for the, for the snails. So they have had fluke for decades, and they've been kind of used to dealing with it. It's all part of the management of sheep and cattle in Argyll. Um, but interestingly, that's the first part of the UK where triclobendazole resistance was reported back in the 1980s. So you could mm-hmm. see that it was already starting to creak. It had maybe been used, as I say, a victim of its own success, used because it was, you don't have to think too hard about what stages in the animals. I'll just use triclobendazole multiple times, but eventually it'll break. Uh, all these parasites will get, you know, they have great ways of getting around any treatment we give them. They, they'll find a way around them. Um, so, yeah, we had concerns about triclobendazole, how well it was working. The farmers did too. Um, so it was a chance to provide some evidence. So we did exactly what I said we should do, was we did composite fecal egg counting monthly from, I think it was about August, September time, and followed them through, uh, fully expecting to be treating them about maybe November time, which is mm-hmm. the typical time of the year. But of course, when when you do a fluke project anywhere, that usually get lovely hot summer, summers, and people think fluke's gone away. So we should maybe try and get more fluke projects going to improve the weather. But um, we 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 followed the egg counts, and and they really didn't have a significant egg count in any of these farms, even in fluke central, until the new year, January February of the following year. So we followed them through, and I mean. We didn't want to be too prescriptive and tell the farmers what to do 
what to treat with or when to treat. It was totally up to them. And I could I could sense and the vets could sense they were quite twitchy. They they knew that they thought they should be treating in November and, and quite a few of them did. But some of them were, were brave and held fire and you could tell they were trigger happy though, um, until the signal of the sentinel animals was sufficient that well let's go in and test these products now. Um, and lo and behold, triclobenazole didn't work on any of the farms. 10 out of 10 had resistance. Um, and the interesting thing was that the guys who did treat back in November treated actually four months too early with a product that didn't work. So that was a take-home message from that little study. Uh, we, we're, oh, still, wow. we're still keeping going with two sentinel farms on just to keep our hand in there. And, and the advice on those farms is then being sort of communicated with the other farmers in that project just to keep people up to speed with what's what's happening but it's allowed us to test all their products like Clozantil and it works really well um, so you know we were able to prove it does work it wasn't just a, some problem with treatment uh, the, the, the different product mm-hmm. worked really well and was able to, to get rid of the triclobendazole resistant isolate but it was really interesting that in a you know part of the world you know where you sort of assumed we we knew quite a bit about fluke and been dealing with it for long enough that you know the timing and product choice weren't as good as they could have been so and the, mm-hmm. the deal break the, the thing that really changed that was that little bit of evidence we tried to do it as cheaply and cheerfully as we could do it the composite egg counts but it was actually a really powerful message that actually there's your signal there now's the time to treat there's the product to use and it worked and it, it's still working and so that we're actually doing some more work in that area. Actually, we've done a little bit of work on, on Isla and we're doing a little bit of work up in Caithness as well. Just a simple sort of yeah, fecal egg counting and using that to time treatments and test efficacy. And that's really been quite powerful. It's quite simple to do and not too expensive, mm-hmm. but it's really valuable information. So that again, maybe, you know, it's all, it's all very well to pontificate about what you should and shouldn't do, but that's just a, an example of, trying to do it just monitoring monthly with a composite egg count using that to test efficacy and time treatments and that worked really nicely and it's much more sustainable yeah no absolutely i mean it really highlights the value doesn't it in 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 testing and trying to target your treatment use and and chemicals because um yeah but it was actually with a loss of triclobendazole it can make it difficult to control fluke or you know maintain welfare and performance yeah, but I think the, the key thing is to prove. I, mean, I, I think there's still some life left in triclobendazole. Um, maybe not in Argyle because we've, you know, we've gone to the trouble of proving it. Ten out of ten farms, mm-hmm. we actually didn't shift the egg count at all. The egg counts just stayed exactly where they were. Um, in fact, I mean, previously the, the, the case study I mentioned in 2012 and 13, where there was a storm of acute, well, actually chronic disease in Fife. That turned out to be a triclobendazole-resistant isolate as well. The animals had picked that up overwintering in the west and brought it back over to the east. And the the farmer, with all good intention, had been using different triclobendazole products and none of them worked. Uh, It was only when we did, we were able to do faecal egg count reduction tests with the different products. We were able to prove, in fact, their egg counts went up when they treated. So it just shows you what they were facing. They were right in the eye of the storm at that point. But Mm Clozantil worked, oxyclozenide worked. Nitroxinol worked and albendazole worked. So it's about t- yeah proving what works. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't expect farmers to test every product under the sun, um, but I think if you're using or thinking of using triclobendazole, I would definitely find out if it's working for you or not. And if it's working, great, then by all means use it. Um, I think there's an assumption that 
it doesn't work and switch to something else. And the worry is that that something else then starts to creak. Because uh, as I said, we don't have a huge number of flucosides out there. So there's a bit of concern about clozantil, especially with nitroxenol being withdrawn, mm-hmm. that it's the obvious next one to to hit, you know, to be pressurized. And um, yeah, if you, if you rely too heavily on one single product, I think we're maybe are storing up some problems for ourselves for later. So it's trying to keep all these products active and using them at the right time to do the job they're designed to do. No, could agree more. Um, last couple of questions then. Um, on a similar sort of topic, um, sort of quarantining incoming stock, the vice has always been on the fruit side of things to give a, to give a treatment triclobendazole. That should cover you. But now we know there's resistance to triclobendazole. What other products should we be using within the quarantine? Is there kind of a protocol to that? Yeah, again, I would just, uh, Daniel, I would defer to Scops. They have carefully crafted quarantine guidance for actually for worm and scab and various other things but fluke especially if fluke is challenging as you say the default was triclobendazole because you didn't have to think too hard of what age of the fluke am am i bringing onto the farm here are they likely to be Mm -hmm. shedding eggs anytime soon you didn't have to be too bothered it it worked but now there are concerns i mean if you the, the issue is i mean triclobendazole might work really well on your farm but you don't know what the animals you're bringing onto your farm are doing i mean if you have the time and inclination and they are so egg counter cup antigen positive at the time you purchase them you could test how well triclobendazole works for them but they need to be kept away from your other animals and and certainly don't allow them to be sort of contaminating the ground with some unknown yeah some fluke of unknown status so there there might be potential to test them but but i i would certainly be looking at yeah i mean triclobendazole if, if there are concerns, you have to think about something else, and that something else has it was clozantil and or nitroxenol, but with nitroxenol being withdrawn, that option being being uh, reduced, and and because the neither of those products can kill fluke of less than six weeks of age, so you have to use them mm-hmm. more than once. So the kind of um, ideal scenario was was clozantil once followed by nitroxenol or clozantil again six weeks later. Um, yep. So I think it might be Clozantil six weeks apart would be the two treatments you'd have to think about and try and keep animals as isolated as you can um, in that time. But it's a long time. It's not like the wormers at all, but faster. You can keep them yarded for 24 hours or whatever, but this is this is different. They, they'll, they'll pass potentially pass eggs for days, weeks. So mm-hmm. trying to keep those eggs off your ground until you've established what you're dealing with here. Um and yeah, I mean, Clozantil should clear them, but if you have to bear in mind, they could have six weeks worth of fluke in them, depending when you bought them, when they're coming on. And it's always the back of your mind thinking, well, what about the six, the, the young fluke that I couldn't kill? Are they now going to grow up? So if you were to treat once with Clozantil and put them out, there is a risk that there's six yeah. weeks worth of baby fluke in those animals that are going to grow up in the next three or four weeks and start shedding eggs on your ground and you don't know what's, whether they're resistant to triclobendazole or anything else. That's that's kind of the worry. Um, so it, it's it's trying to be as watertight as you can. So you would need a second treatment to take out those younger fluke when they've become old enough to kill. But it, it is complicated. It's a moving target. It's quite hard to explain. Um, but it does require... Th- thinking about the diagnostic tests and the timings and what age of fluke are in animals, the time of the year, where'd you buy them from? Do they know anything about the status? Although obviously it's buyer beware, it's your your issue now. Um, they might tell you, uh, I think there's 
strictly benzoyl works, but it'd be interesting to know, can you prove it? Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd be a wee bit wary of that and, uh, yeah, try and provide some evidence one way or the other, the status of the, the fluke population and the animals you're buying. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of factors going on here. Um, the Scots website really is a great resource as well um, for all sort of quarantine procedures, uh, not just not just fluke. Um, final question then, Philip. Um, what about a vaccine? Is it is it a possibility in the future? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll get shot by my colleagues at Morden because we invariably say <laughs> we'll be very disappointed if we don't have a vaccine in five years and then five years comes around and we don't. Um, just, I mean, just to put my cards on the table, I, think, I mean, I mean, we've all under, been amazed at the speed at which the world has produced uh, a COVID vaccine or vaccines. Um, but you have to bear in mind that's had a colossal amount of money thrown at it. Um, and it's only mm -hmm. a virus, uh, with all due respect to virologists amongst us. Uh, Helminth parasites, worms and fluke are really complicated things. They have genomes as big as ours. Um, if you think about them, they have to live inside snails and inside livers and deer and rabbits and cattle and sheep and humans and on the ground and so the, the instruction book is big so as a result of that yeah. they produce really complicated proteins so the, the things that go into vaccines to try and trigger immune responses are very complicated when they're made by things like these flatworm parasites um, but there's a couple of real issues with a fluke vaccine um, number one is sheep and cattle do not mount a protective immune response. And that, that's different from the immune response. When I said they produce antibodies, they do, but that doesn't protect them. They're, antibodies are great against viruses. They're not much good against big cornflakes, um, I can assure you. So animals do produce an, an immune response, and it's a great diagnostic test, but it doesn't protect them. It's not the basis of a vaccine. Um, they also have, there's wildlife hosts, I mentioned briefly, Fluke could quite happily cycle through deer and rabbits and various other things, and humans, farmers, given half a chance. So there's always the risk that it sort of spills out from the livestock. And I guess another key challenge is that the snails, which are, you don't get with roundworms, the amplifying and spreading infection. So the sheer burden of infection can be overwhelming for, for Fluke. But um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of research going on. If that, hopefully that will reassure folks in Australia and, and Ireland, actually, been, uh, maybe mm -hmm. several decades of research, uh, looking at secretions and things that the flukes release and can they use, can those be used to protect animals? Then, and there's some evidence that it can, it does work to some extent, but not, not as, maybe not as strong an immune protection as we'd like. Um, and just to sort of square the circle, we, we've tried actually, um, I don't know if you, if you know, but more than, produced the first uh, anti-worm vaccine in the world in, in Australia. It's against a roundworm called Hemonchus, Barber's mm -hmm. Pole, Barbervax. And that takes advantage of the fact that Hemonchus, Barber's Pole worm is a blood feeder and targets antigens on the gut of the worm. So it drinks in antibodies that kill it from the inside out. And it works really, really well against Hemonchus. So we sort of naively thought, well, liver fluke's a blood feeder as well. Could we try the same thing? So we have tried manfully several times to do this uh, with experimental challenge infections, and, and sadly, the protection just isn't good enough. Um, so it's an ex it's expensive business, and uh, we've sadly shelved it for now. Uh, so we're we're not going to pursue it. We'll leave that to others. But it's the holy. It would be the holy grail of a 
of the sort of parasite world or the fluke world to have a vaccine that protected animals that would be really good because then you reduce your reliance on chemicals and animals are, are protected and naturally immune to infection but sadly they don't that doesn't happen in nature and uh, there's a bit more research required but i wouldn't rule it out but it's a challenge uh, they're not viruses um they're complicated and uh, maybe that's the best place to leave it yeah <laughs> it's uh yeah, fingers crossed um i thought maybe we just need one last question in if that's all right sure um about rumen fluke yeah that's become the kind of new, kind of... yeah, yeah the, the new kid on the block folks might have heard some rumors about mm -hmm. rumen fluke and stomach fluke um yeah, they're they're flatworms as well. Although they're always liking things to food products, so they like little pomegranate seeds when they're fully grown. Um, you can mm -hmm. see them in clusters on the stomach. They actually live in the, the stomach lining, uh, sheep and cattle. That I think they're they're more um, common or more reported in cattle. I don't know what that says about where cattle go grazing, but it's this kind of similar life cycle, life history to the liver fluke. So they, they go through the same snails and the same sort of things happen. Uh, it's just that they live in the in the stomach lining. Um, what they do there, we're still not altogether sure. They can, I mean, cattle can have thousands of them covering the, the stomach lining and you think that can't be doing the cow much good, but there really isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that they cause big production impacts. Um, farmers mm -hmm. might disagree with me on that. Um, but you know, so there's still a bit of a, an argument about how important they are. Um, they are relatively easily treated, and but that complicates things a little bit because the one treatment that will kill them is a product called oxyclozonide, which you might have heard me mention. That's a liver fluke drug as well. Um, and most because they cycle through the same snails and on the same farms, they can quite often be found in the same animals. So you can have animals with liver mm -hmm. fluke and rumen fluke together. Um, their eggs look pretty similar, and for a few years they were all just counted as fluke eggs, but now we know they're different. So, yeah, I, I think I would always come back to, especially in sheep, liver fluke is the acknowledged pathogen here. Um, and I, I think if you can get on top of liver fluke and the habitat and the, the diagnostics and the treatment, so that you have nice sustainable control of liver fluke on your farm, that'll take care of rumen fluke as well. It's pretty much the same scenario. Um, if you If you can... You know, manage the snails and manage the infection, manage the, 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 the fluke burden, and rumen fluke shouldn't be much of an issue, especially not in sheep. I mean, there have been fatal cases, but it's been really uh, rare um, that you get clinical cases like that. And it's been where animals have unfortunately grazed an area where there was a huge contamination uh, all at one time. Um, it's rare, and I hope it stays that way. Um, but again, you never know with changing climate and the it's a bit more fluky out there generally. Um, but yeah, the message is liver fluke is, is still the major pathogen here. And that's the one we need to get on, get on top of if we can. But it, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's challenging. Certainly is. No, um, just like to say a big thank to you, Philip, for um, joining me today. It's been really interesting. You're very welcome.